be very pleased to know what they think they're doing. I think they're all insane. Ladies and gents, welcome to another episode of Hidden Perspective. This is Rob Greco. It's good to be back exactly a week after my previous episode release. As promised, I do want to get into a weekly episode schedule for you. So consider this keeping up the momentum. So let's see how long I can keep that going for. So before I get into the episode, I do just want to quickly say, if you are getting value out of these, you do enjoy listening to them, please let some family members know, let some friends know, help me help me spread the word. That would be much appreciated. Now, as you may or may not be aware, my home state is Victoria, Australia. Now, I don't happen to be living there, but Victoria has actually undergone one of the strictest, most intense and the longest lockdowns in the world, despite the fact that it actually hasn't had a lot of the COVID virus circulating. So to discuss this, I've decided to interview one of my longstanding friends, Julian Angelados, who used to be a world-class debater for Melbourne University. He's now a musician. So in the course of this interview, Jules and I discuss actually what happened to Victoria, some of the policy failures, and then we kind of dive deeper into some more abstract, I guess, philosophical ideas around the government's role in a pandemic and whether it has the ability to lock down its citizens. It's a far and wide-ranging discussion, so I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I now bring you the interview. Okay, Julian Angelados, welcome to the Hidden Perspective podcast. It's good to have you on. It's great to finally be on. <laughs> All right. So I wanted to get you on the, to the podcast for a couple of reasons. First, uh, you're a Victorian and you're living in some of the uh, one of the harshest and strictest lockdowns in the world. And the second reason is you're a longstanding friend who is an original and clear thinker. So I really value your opinion on the topic. So I appreciate you coming on to the pod. Thank you, mate. And uh, can I just say the, the your your intro track really pumps. So. <laughs> a little known fact is Jules Jules was the pioneer of the intro song. So if you're a fan of that, as many people have come up to me said they are, uh, you have Jules to thank. All right, Jules, have they so actually? <laughs> they have. They have. Some people have have commented how um, that's good. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're big fans. But, all right, so Jules, I want to paint a picture. So, you and I are uh-huh. both Victorians. Uh, you're living in Victoria, Australia. I happen to be living in Alberta, Canada. Uh-huh. Um, pretty much since July here in Alberta, which has a population of, I think it's maybe 1.5 million fewer people than Victoria. The Alberta's population is around 4 million people. Uh, we've had cases ranging from you know, 100 to now 300 cases a day since the middle of July. But we've been living under pretty normal conditions. Everything isn't back to normal, but most things are. You can have 50 people indoors, 200 people outdoors. Uh, Masks are mandatory inside, um, depending on the city or the community you live in. But generally, things are back to normal. The only thing you can't go to are like big sporting events or concerts, Whereas you, on the other hand, happen to be living in a state with a greater population and in the last couple of days, you guys have, what, 10 cases a day, 12 cases a day? 
Yeah, I think the average, the two-week rolling average just popped over uh, 10 uh, yesterday. So right. it's two-week average of 10 a day. But in saying that, you're living under pretty, still some pretty restrictive conditions. Is that right? Yeah, well, I don't know. I, I never spent time working out how to diagnose uh, lack of freedom. But yeah, we're talking about, you know, I can't go further than five kilometers from my house unless it's for very specific reasons, like to get healthcare or to go to my job. Having said that, most forms of employment aren't uh, currently legal. So they've got definitions of essential workers and uh, if you can't really do your job, even if it's within the five kilometers, um, you can't have anyone over at your house at all um, unless you're single. Um, and if you're single, you're allowed to create a bubble between you and one other person who comes and visits. Um, you can only see one other household outside in a public space, and um, that can be a maximum of five people. So, you know, I've got three roommates. I've got two two housemates. We could catch up with two people from the same house outside at a park or something for two hours. Right. Yeah, so you yeah you can't go to any most retails closed sort of all retail outside of essential right. retails closed like it's it's yeah so I wouldn't say it's pretty strict I would say it's uh, I would have called this some sort of Armageddon pre you know last year yeah yeah you're pretty much the <laughs> furthest thing from back to normal still at this stage even though even though cases over the last week have gone down to even some days I've noticed Victoria had single digit cases so yeah I think today's seven. <laughs> Okay, so there's an there's a pretty extreme disparity in the uh, approaches that Victoria's taken, and the province that I'm living in in Canada, Alberta, has taken like many other uh, jurisdictions around the world. So, just to give some people context, especially those who aren't listening to this from Victoria or you haven't heard of what's been going on in Victoria, Australia. So, to give a timeline of events in January. On January 25th, Victoria received the first COVID case in Australia. Um, so, if anything, it should have been more prepared than other states and territories. In late March, Victoria enacted its first lockdown along with pretty much the rest of Australia and most of the world. And that lockdown lasted eight weeks. And then in early June, restrictions eased up as cases went down uh, along uh, in Victoria along with the rest of the country. So, Victoria and Australia had successfully flattened the curve as as they say but then in on june 20th uh victoria reinstated some new restrictions in certain postcodes um as victoria was the only state to see an uptick in cases and roughly at this time we learned that uh hotel quarantine was an absolute shambles so victoria was the only state in australia not to accept the australian defense force's support in managing hotel quarantine Instead, the Victorian government opted for uh, private security guards and it's these security guards did a terrible job. Uh, some of them had sex with people in quarantine, believe it or not, and then that led to further community spread. Um, then on July 7th, uh, Premier Daniel Andrews reintroduces a lockdown for the entire Melbourne metro area as well as the Mitchell Shire. On July 23rd, masks become mandatory. On August the 2nd, Premier Andrews declares a state of disaster and he escalated restrictions into a stage four lockdown, uh, which was to last six weeks. 
Uh, this is when Victorians got something like a, a curfew and some of those really restrictive measures that Jules touched on. Then after that six-week period, September 14th, um, Andrews introduces th- a three-step reopen based on achieving case number targets. Uh, that first step went into effect on September 14th. Um, in saying this, many restrictions are still in place. They still have things like the curfew, the five-kilometer rule, uh, essential shopping. Um, then on September 28th, Victoria moved to the second step after the 14-day case average had fallen below 50 cases. Now, currently, as Jules is touching on briefly just before, Melbourne is still in the second step of this. Uh, many of those restrictions are still in place. Um, Jules and his fellow Victorians can only get to stage three of uh, the reopen once the daily case average over the past 14 days is less than five cases. Um, and then there's another rule that that, that has to be less than five cases with an unknown source over the past 14 days. And then when Victoria is in step three, it can only then proceed to the last step if there are no cases in the community over a 14-day period. (laughs) But it's actually not really the last step because then you can only proceed to the next stage, which is they call COVID normal when there are no cases over a 28-day period. So just to give a summation, just to highlight how insane this is, uh, in total, Victorians have spent... uh, 22 weeks under strict lockdown, which is 154 days as of today, and rising, uh, we can at least expect Victorians to be in this lockdown for a few more weeks, unless Dan Andrews reconsiders his reopen plan. Um, and note that this was only eight weeks with the rest of Australia. It's been 14 weeks, 14 extra weeks of lockdown, just Victoria alone. So while the rest of Australia has pretty much returned back to normal and has enjoyed a lot of the freedoms that Victorians no longer get to enjoy. Uh, Victorians have been alone in this. So, Jules, do you think I missed anything in terms of that timeline of events? Uh, so, I, I add a couple of details. So, the first I'd add is when the, all of Australia sort of went into a lockdown, uh, there really wasn't any of the virus in the community. So the virus was coming from uh, returning travellers from overseas. So Australians who had been overseas, particularly the United States and Europe, coming home and bringing the virus with them. So once uh, once the governments had worked out that um, that's where the virus was going to come, uh, they started testing and quarantining people coming home. So we would see like every day we would see all these numbers, you know, 20, 30, 40. And, you know, that's where South Australia, Western Australia, all these other states in in Australia had their right. cases. But I think it's important to point out that really outside of Victoria, and you could probably say uh, a little incident that happened in Tasmania and a little right. incident that happened in New South Wales, there wasn't any community transmission in Australia. So, okay. and and I think that's the really important thing. So it was it was clear that the virus was coming from overseas um, in the same way that New Zealand. um, So what you had on June 20, um, no, sorry, in March was a lockdown with the rest of Australia. And that lockdown was, was, uh, I think it was called stage three at the time. It's not as awful as what I'm currently experiencing, but it was really intense. But I think the point I'd make there is, that 
you know, all these businesses were shut down, you know, obviously, you know, our freedoms are crazily limited, our ability to socialize, all this stuff that, that happens as a consequence of lockdown was done basically as an insurance policy against the virus uh, spreading from uh, people returning home from overseas. Right. You know, what does it say about a government? And if you're interested in the politics here, Victoria was was sort of went very sort of compelled the other states and the federal government to go down a really strict lockdown path. So on on one side you've got um, you know this issue is huge. The consequences might be a disaster. So the proportionate thing to do is to destroy all this uh, all this you know all these freedoms, all this economic freedom, and we're going to be we're going to be really blunt instrument on one side. Right. And then on, and then, uh, of course, what's the actual issue? The actual issue is keeping people who have this virus returning from overseas outside of the community. And uh, the Victorian government's response was to uh, defer that responsibility to private security guards, hired casually, poorly trained. Um, and that was the reason why we had such awful community spread. So you've got, I guess... Yeah, you know, like it's it's if if the issue is so serious that all of our freedoms need to be destroyed and emergency measures need to be taken by a government, then you would hope that uh, a reciprocal response is used in you know the actual material management of the virus, which was That's in right. those hotels, and it right. wasn't. <laughs> if you're going to expect every citizen to obey by the rules and do their part, uh, put simply, then you need to do your part, which is quarantine and contract tracing and some really key tools in pandemic management right it, it seems like a pretty reciprocal reciprocal agreement now Jules before we get into just touching on some of those lockdown rules uh, full disclosure here that this isn't a partisan attack it isn't as if Jules and I happen to be these uh, these big liberal party fans and just to give context to the international list, is that the Liberal Party is the centre-right party in Australia, whereas the Labor Party is the centre-left party, and Dan Andrews, is, who's Premier, is uh, a Labor politician. So that just gives you some context. Um, yeah, Jules is definitely the furthest thing from a, a Liberal Party hack who's going to come out and uh, onto this podcast just for the sake of scoring political points uh, for the Liberal Party. So full disclosure there. Um, so Jules, I just want to turn to some of those lockdown rules. So you did touch them in touch on those in your intro. And the thing that would probably be really striking for international listen, international listeners are a couple of those rules. So first one, the five kilometer radius, uh, the curfews and the fines. So, you know, I've lived in both British Columbia and Alberta throughout the pandemic two Canadian provinces and we went under lockdowns uh, during the first lockdown in March, April, May. I was in British Columbia. And just the idea that you would have this police state come in uh, issuing, you know, fines in in the thousands of dollars for breaching a certain, uh, you know, five kilometer rule or a curfew is just completely insane. And I think this is a point that a lot of Victorians and even Australians don't really understand is that the the measures and the authoritarianism with which these lockdown rules have come into play isn't 
common amongst comparable liberal democratic, even social democratic countries. So, um, you know, is this, have you actually noticed, you know, uh, um, you know, amongst your fellow Victorians, uh, an awareness of how strict these measures are relative to somewhere like Canada, the no. US or Europe? No, no. But, and, 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 and so that's, it's like, I should have made, uh, sorry, I was trying to make this point before. And so I want to go back to it. So the point I made before about the fact that pretty much the rest of Australia outside of Victoria didn't have widespread community transmission. Right. And so what that did was it created the opportunity, which pretty much all the states in Victoria have uh, followed up on, of exterminating the virus. So basically right. having entirely community free, like the, the virus is not being in the community at all. Right? Get on top of it, act early, and so, you're fine. Sure. Yeah. So you know, Australia seems fucking, like a noble goal in yeah, the beginning. Australia is miles away from everywhere else in the world, and you know, just like New Zealand was able to, pretty much all of Australia was able to just you know have this virus be a non-issue. Yeah. There's like right. you know, there was sixty. You know, there's like there's going to be sixty thousand people at at the Gabbo in Brisbane. You know, watching the AFL Grand Final soon. Like most of Australia is you know not experiencing this at all. Uh, in the same way, Victoria is the. So, what that does, though, is it makes, uh, because we want this exterminated from the community, which, and then the whole, you know, is is the government being transparent about this? I would say no, but that's a separate discussion. Let's just say, you know, based on their metrics, you know, no virus for a month. Right. Um, I think we can call that, you know, I think no virus for a month or no virus for two weeks, whatever the WHO, World Health Organization definition of extermination is whatever elimination the point is we have no tolerance for the virus so i think that that was what i was trying to say before that as a country we have no tolerance for this virus to the extent that all these states have closed their borders on victoria because victoria right. has you know a, a, too much of this virus going on in the community they don't want any community transmission of this virus australians don't want this virus or australian governments don't want this virus and unlike these other liberal democratic countries Right. which is the response to your question, uh, that's a reasonable possibility. Whereas I think the fact that Canada shares a border with the United States, right. such an important border, means that Canadians can't reasonably expect to get rid of this virus, right? So I think that Correct. creates the con that creates the context in which all this is possible. So and I think that's that's such an important point that that you know, uh, Victoria's had what eight hundred and fifteen people or something die of the virus, just over eight hundred people. Right. But we've experienced one of the worst lockdowns anywhere in the world. Now that's because we're not trying to make sh to tr to keep the costs of having this. We're not trying to. We're not implementing lockdowns as a way to main to have a reasonable level of this virus, we're implementing lockdowns to get rid of the virus. Right. And, uh, okay, so in saying that, uh, you know, are your fellow Victorians, your friends, your family members, are they, are they all aware that this is an overtly uh, elimination-based strategy and they're okay with the 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 extreme violation of uh, their freedoms, or do you think that they've been lied to by the Victorian government, who's uh, at, at some stages said all they need to do is 
flatten the curve, uh, mitigate, uh, and 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 ensure that the healthcare system isn't going to get overwhelmed. In other words, uh, what I'm really asking is, uh, uh, is the average guy on the street okay with what's happening um, because they're they're simply happy to embrace these measures to eliminate the virus, or is there some pretty strong resistance? I look, it's interesting. Like when, when the second major lockdown was announced, you know, I had to get some medical treatment from, uh, you know, a, a specialist surgeon and, you know, he was just appalled, you know, by what mm-hmm. they were doing and, you know, didn't, you know, thought it was just outrageous, thought, you know, this is an elimination strategy. And, you know, he was basically saying that, you know, he had seen such a massive decline in appointments from people that he was going to be dealing with, uh, way more incurable cancers next year mm-hmm. and that, you know, the cost of all this wasn't being taken into account. So that was an example. But look, Rob, I think part of, you know, people's experience, like when governments decide to do things, people take – so for example, I, I you know, I, I feel like the government decides to, you know, drastically change your life. You can't see your friends. Maybe you've lost employment. Um, you start working from home. So all of a sudden your life is full of challenges and your, 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 you know, your five cents worth of an opinion on the issue, um, isn't necessarily very practical or helpful. You know, I'm sure Mm. that my eagerness to politically and philosophically, uh, inquire, during this period has contributed to, you know, worse mental health for myself. <laughs> you know, like I spoke to my dad about it, you know, and, and some of the laws that were trying to pass in terms of, you know, arbitrary detention from, you know, you could all of a sudden get arrested arbitrarily by a, a health department right. official, you know, so and I was talking, I was talking op- to my dad, and yeah. my dad's a lawyer, right? My dad cares a lot about this stuff. And I spoke right. to my dad about it and my dad was really transparent and he was like, Look, Jules, I haven't really been spending too much time caring about all this stuff. I've been trying to just focus on the positives. Now that probably <laughs> your psychologist is probably going to tell you that, you know, oh, look, you can't, you know, focus on what you can right. control, not what you can't control. And, you know, right. Robin, Robin, <laughs> you know, so, so why worry about the politics when you have no control of it, you know, try to, try to make positive things out of it. So I think most people are doing that. Like their okay. lives have been blown up. Everyone's right. mental health has been massacred and destroyed. And I feel like most people just want to focus on how they're going to get through it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So as you were just mentioning there, that, that that was the omnibus bill. Can you just give people a little bit more context as to what this is? Or I believe it's almost been passed. Potentially there no, was some- it failed. Am- no, it no, no, failed. The cross, cross bench, cross, no, it's been amended. It's passed, but amended. Okay. So okay. I think it was passed last night, yeah. uh, but, it, but it was amended- Basically, the Victorian Bar Council, the Australian Bar Council, uh, a bunch of judges, including high court judges, I'm pretty sure. So, you know, barristers in Australia, uh, right. I think people know what, anyway, all the these, all these independent, all these independent, um, co- like collect, like, uh, lawyer councils basically said that a proposed legislation by the government was way over the top and, you know, um, you know, ch- challenged, you know, uh, went further, was was basically violating our human rights and democratic right. rights un- under the law. And basically the government wanted to be able to assign powers to uh, health department people, 
but it was a really broad definition of who could have the powers. And basically, if it was, if if a health department official reasonably, so some bureaucrat uh, had re- had a right. reasonable reasonable uh, belief. reason, belief or reasonable yeah. belief that you were going to break uh, r- uh, COVID rules. Right. They could detain you for like two weeks and right. know, not, not, you know. So a person didn't actually need to break the rules. So let's no. say it was a curfew, but if yeah. there was a suspicion that this person would break the rules, they could be detained. So Correct. not only are we handing over detention powers to unelected officials and, and, and to um, someone who isn't a member of the police force, but we're also handing over those powers to detain someone for not even committing a crime. Right. And so this, but see, so you go, okay, you know, it depends from what perspective you look at this. If you look at this from the perspective of we need to get rid of the virus entirely, all of these measures start to make more sense. They might you, you you might not reach a point where you go, oh, this is still acceptable, but you know your level of your margin for error in a situation where you need this vi- this virus entirely removed from the community is really really small. So yeah, these these extermination, you know, this elimination. I should probably say elimination. Whatever this this set of policies particularly after community transmissions unfortunately happened, right. which was the case in Victoria, they create the context for all of this, yeah? So yeah. Yeah. This, is, this is how this happens. Um, yeah, I mean, to me, that was appalling. But it, it's been appalling that the, that the whole time during COVID, yeah. you know, state of, state of emergency and, and state of disaster powers have been enacted, which basically allows a copper to walk into any house he wants right. to. Right. Yeah, I've seen a few of those videos of – um, there was uh, one fairly widely publicized case of a lady who posted a anti-lockdown protest event on Facebook. She was a pregnant woman and there's video of uh, two police officers coming into her home and arresting her um, for merely posting a anti-lockdown protest. And funnily enough, I actually looked at that Facebook event and that was – so the media latched onto that as if this person was um, claiming that COVID was a hoax, that um, that this person was an anti-vaxxer, this person was a 5G conspiracy theorist. And in fact, if you just took a, a minute to read the Facebook event, it said, you know, we believe COVID is very serious – uh, we want everyone who who attends this protest to wear a mask, uh, but we simply believe that the cost of lockdown exceeds the cost of the virus. Something pretty sensible, one would have thought. But there was this hysteria to um, not only for the police to crack down on her, but for also the media to label anyone who could potentially hold a view that's critical of lockdowns as some absolute crackpot. So, uh, yeah. like, and... I'm I'm guessing a lot of this has been happening because I think there was an anti-lockdown protest uh, three weeks ago. Only a hundred people attended it, and the police cracked down and issued uh, many arrests and even more fines. Is that right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So there's pretty much no, and even though uh, back in when was it uh, May, June, July, whenever it was, there was a BLM protest that took place in Melbourne with thousands of people, and nobody dared to crack down on that which 
so like what's happening in Victoria? Why why is there one that inconsistency and why is it this this um eager this eagerness, this willingness to take away something as as vital as your right to protest? Yeah, so it happens it happens I was thinking about this last night. What you have is like there's a context for it that is is enables it. And so I think the context is, you know, as Australians, we were watching the news every night and we watched, you know, those northern northern parts of Italy just get decimated, you know, parts of Europe get decimated. We we saw those, you know, really emotional uh press conferences where the governor the governor of, of New York State just being uh, you know devastated by his lack of ventilators and right. uh, you know we, 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 we saw parts of the world in, in genuine crisis as a consequence of the virus and as such we saw those we saw those jurisdictions around the world implement lockdown right and and the, the collection of policies we call lockdown mm-hmm and I think what that does is it, you know, and that, you know, I'm pretty sure in the, at the worst, at the worst periods of, of what was going on in New York, uh, ambulances weren't available for people who were having heart attacks and things, right? And and there was, I remember watching, uh, watching reports of, uh, you know, Ambos, you know, t- working double shifts every day, basically sleeping in their, sleeping in their uh, ambulance and all kinds of crazy stuff going on as a consequence of the health system over there being totally overwhelmed. Yeah, of course. Now that, that, that creates a context and a normalization of, of, of things. It also creates an opportunity for politicians to, uh, to potentially manipulate that context. And so in Australia, Every in Victoria, rather, every time Daniel Andrews has initiated another level of lockdown, mm-hmm. it basically sounds like this. You know, th- these are really hard decisions, but you know, what's what's a harder decision is deciding who gets a ventilator and who mm-hmm. doesn't. What's a harder decision right. is deciding who gets care and who doesn't. What's a harder decision is. Right. Is, is not saying that you can't go to a party. It's saying you're not going to get treated for your disease because our hospitals are full. And I think the, I think a key instrument that's been used that I've, you know, when I've had discussions with friends about this is that, you know, the difference between Andrew's doing what he, you know, Victoria going down this path or not is us turning into, you know, those jurisdictions that were just destroyed and overwhelmed. And I think, I think that, that, that's just a total falsification of, of right. what's going on, and I think I think most, and I feel like, on balance, I also think that part of the reason why, as Victorians, we've been willing to put up with such an awful level of lockdown, even though it should be used as a reason to against it, is like, oh well, look, we're we're so lucky we're not like those places, you know, and because right. we've decided to sacrifice our convenience and our liberty and our economy and whatever else, uh, you know. We haven't ended up like those places, you know. But I, okay. I yeah. so I don't think that's, you know. But that that's that's not right, is it? Because we, we we could choose to put up with, you know, a level of the virus that doesn't decimate, um, decimate the health system, but you know, still allows for uh, a lot more freedom. We're choosing not to do that. Okay. You no, know, that that does provide a bit more context 
uh, for me going from the outside. But okay, so before we get into more of these abstract issues, which I do want to discuss with you, um, let's go through the policy failures in a bit more detail. So the first one is hotel quarantine, right? So mm-hmm. it, it's it's believed that virtually, what is it, 95 to 98% of all deaths have been attributed to the hotel quarantine scandal. But there's an ongoing investigation as to who actually wished to use private contractors uh, and refuse the offer from the ADF. So um, how do you assess this policy failure? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty clear, isn't it? Like there should have been, uh, you know, like I said, the issue is serious enough that we're going to implement, you know, at least for Victoria, you know, world first levels of uh, restrictions on liberties, restrictions right. on trading, restrictions right. on freedom. So the issue could not be more serious uh, based on that level of government intervention. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the same, the same seckies that, you know, uh, stop you from crowd surfing at, you know, a festival are the people entrusted with, you know, protecting the spread of the virus. Right. You know, like the equivalent. It just doesn't add up. No, it should have been, it should have been fucking Navy SEALs. It should have been, it should have been like, it should have been like the most sophisticated, best trained people in Australia right now for this purpose being there making sure because it turns out that the costs of community transmission is a whole entire state. Uh, suffering an extra, you know, twenty weeks of lockdown. So, so it it yeah. it it should have been like you know, any company does risk assessments and looks at looks. Okay, where can we be ruined here? Um, let's just make sure that the place where it's most likely things can go wrong doesn't go wrong, and let's put a crazy amount of effort into stopping that. So, in terms of making sure that the community, if it did spread. Uh, didn't spread it too much. We did that. We destroyed. We destroyed the ability for the community to spread anything by um, removing its mobility and all of that. Did we? Did we do a proportional level of that with hotel quarantine? No. So uh, right, every other state. Not. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, like it, it's it's one of the dumbest, stupidest, most profoundly depressing failures of government I can ever think of. Uh, which points to the nature of government, which is something else you know I'd like to talk about. But right, uh, yeah, governments aren't perfect, and in this instance, they were disgraceful. <laughs> right. <laughs> Fair so another one of those government failures is contract tracing. So I learned that the Victorian government sent a fact-finding team of contract tracers to New South Wales only in mid-September. So as I mentioned in the beginning, Victoria was the first the first state in Australia to receive a COVID case. Um, and it turns out that we're doing a terrible job with contract tracing and they only had the awareness to send, to learn how to actually do this properly in the middle of September. Yeah. I mean, like <laughs> that, yeah, look, you know, Andrews would argue, you know, the Victorian premier would argue that, that you know, after that inquiry, that fact finding mission, they ended up, you know, he, he reckons they it showed that they were doing everything well. I don't know. You know, there's you right. know, the Australian Medical Association, which is like the the key body of 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 doctors in Australia. They've said that they've been they've said that the contact tracing in Victoria is shit, and that the whole health department in Victoria sucks. 
Um, Right. You know the federal federal government has said that Victoria sucks, that that the, the that the Victorian health department sucks. I don't know. Does the health department suck? Probably. <laughs> Do government bodies suck? Probably. Right. Uh, uh, it looked like our ability to handle outbreaks has been poor. I I don't know. I'm not an expert on this. All I know is uh yeah. You know, I used to I used to work for the Melbourne Exhibition and Convention Center, mm-hmm. and uh, you know we we were we were paid by the the you know the state government of Victoria, and you know we were the most inefficient uh, over <laughs> over over bureaucratic yeah. uh, uh, you know wasteful uh, right. government arm and and employer I've ever worked for ever. So you know I'm assuming the rest <laughs> of the government's like that, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, okay. And then so, speaking of this overly complicated bureaucratic arm of government, it also turns out that another failure from Andrews has been that he lied about the basis for his very unpopular curfew. So, uh, Victoria only had curfew in the second lockdown. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. So, he had, so the... The first curfew you guys had was from 8 p.m. to 5 a.m. And then the second curfew after one of those reopen phases came in was 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. And mm-hmm. so to give people an idea, it turns out that Andrew said that this was needed to uh, protect protect the community and slow down transmission. And it turns out that the chief medical officer didn't recommend that. And then when I went back to Andrews asking, well, then why did you put it in? He said, well, we needed it because uh, it, w- it, it, was, it was requested of us by the police force. And then it turns out that the head of police said they didn't ask for the curfew. So what's going on here? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it seems obviously the curfew was dropped uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, you know, I mean, you're the lawyer. Uh, but out of the two of us, so you know. But I, I believe that people are. There's a level of confidence that uh, the lawsuit against the government to remove the curfew was going to be successful. Absolutely. Whether whether that's people wanting to defer, uh, defer their responsibility for implementing it. I mean, I don't know. Uh, am I? Sh- I'm pretty confident that the curfew. Uh, you know, if it wasn't re- recommended by the police or uh, or the chief health officer, what I do know is that it, I'm certain it was effective. Uh, just like all of these draconian methods or measures are effective, because you know, if you were on the road past curfew, you felt really uncomfortable. Right. So, but then on the flip um, side, if if this curfew is in place and then everyone has to do their shopping by eight p.m., doesn't that in turn mean that? the stores are more crowded because you're you're reducing the available time for people to actually shop which in turn increases crowding hey look maybe i i i all i know is that if when it, you know i think the people like catching up with their friends and i think uh probably the version of uh breaking the rules in covid was you know maybe having one or two friends over in the evening um, you know, and getting pissed and whatever else and having a good time at night. Mm-hmm. And I think it made everyone feel less comfortable about doing that. So I think if you were a rule breaker, mm-hmm. um, then you were going to 
you know, probably just make sure you went over to your friend's house before that curfew and then right, spent the night right. there. So, I mean, uh, look, uh, I I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, in terms of in terms of deciding, you know, what's most effective, what isn't most effective. Yeah. Uh, you know, what the Chinese did, you know, if someone had the virus and they just w- welded their fucking doors shut, I'm pretty right. sure that's effective too. That can be effective. <laughs> like, <laughs> exactly. It's, it's, it's whether it, you know, should it be happening or not? <laughs> yeah. You know, effectiveness and, is one part I, of that I, equation. I think this is, this is another thing that I wanted to talk about, which is that you can, you could justify any measure um, on the basis on that it's effective. Right. Sure. You yeah, could put totally. everyone in solitary <laughs> confinement, have the army deliver them food and medicine. Uh, people wouldn't get to see their loved ones for seven days, but hey, like the virus would be eliminated. Does that mean we want to put everyone into solitary confinement? Of course not. So, um, I think, uh, like, but that's but see that's an example of the discussions that are vigorously had within the media. So Rob, Rob and I, before we started recording, were talking about the function of the media. Maybe we'll go back to it. But that's an example of what does get crazy amount of airtime. So, mm-hmm. for example, articles about epidemiologists putting forward what they think are the most effective measures and whether this measure is more effective than that right. measure, whether that measure is more right. effective than this measure. Now that is stuff that's discussed in infinite detail in okay. Australia right now. So okay. the effectiveness of things, right? And 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 those discussions are had without a calibration and consideration of the costs. Right. So so that those kind of debates go on endlessly and and have been going on endlessly, you know. The effectiveness of this versus the effectiveness of that versus the modeling of this versus the modeling of that. Um, and all of those articles don't then have, oh, we also factor into the account that this will, re- you know, that this measure compared to this measure results in this much more financial hardship, this much more social isolation, this much more suicide and depression compared to this much suicide and depression and economic hardship. Right. I don't ever read those on those articles. What I read is an epidemiologist saying that this would be more effective or that would be more effective at getting rid of the virus. And that's sort of as far as these articles go. But there's endless amounts of debate about that. Do you get articles and debate about the fact that ICU capacity capacity never exceeded 3.2% in Victoria? Because Andrews is always claiming that these insanely authoritarian measures are needed because, hey, uh, if we don't do this, you won't get your healthcare. And it's always um, framed as a healthcare system constraint when, in fact, at the peak level of virus in Victoria, ICU capacity wasn't even at 5%. It was at, uh, I think the highest it ever got to was 3.1%. Did, have people ever brought that up? No, no, because, because uh, again, like as a country, we've, no government has explicitly said, including the federal government, that we're going for uh, elimination. And I think that's because what it does is it is it creates criteria that they've self-established that can then be used against them, and they can be pointed they can be pointed as you know, well, you're right. failing because you haven't eliminated it, right? You haven't eliminated have, it, and totally- also the fact that there was a level of community transmission, say in June, July, which necessitated much and a much earlier enactment of the lockdowns, right? In Victoria. Yeah, so at the, at, the, at the stage where Victoria in kind of June, July was getting, what, 20, 30, 40 cases a day, 
if elimination were the strategy all along, you would have implemented almost as Jacinda Ardern has done in New Zealand. As soon as there was one case, everyone back to lockdown because it's an overt elimination strategy. But Victoria didn't do that, right? No, we didn't do that. And it may well be the case that the reason why we didn't do that is because uh, we didn't maybe think that the rest of the country would be so successful. You know, I mean, that's, that's probably what happened as well is like, Mm. you know, the whole rest of the country got on top of it and just Victoria fucked it. And so it's like, oh, elimination was totally available to us. And so now we're sort of retrospectively trying to do it. Right. Have this tunnel vision. It's like, yeah, yeah. But there's not, but when it first happened, I think Australia was bracing to end up like the rest of the world, you know? And so we were talking about flattening the curve now. So that, so that, that all these other consequences of the virus getting out of control don't happen. Now, yeah, trying to tell, trying to tell Victorians that you know nine hundred a day, a thousand a day, seven hundred a day, aged care, you know, deaths becoming rampant and all this stuff. Trying to contextualize that as you know three point two percent of ICU capacity, and everyone else's life who doesn't have the virus being uh, not in any way worsened, um, and our tolerance for cases being so much higher than than what the peak of the second wave was. Um, yeah, that's, you know, what, you know, what I've had friends say to me in response to that is, oh, what, so we're just going to wait till we're, wait till we're New York. We're just going to wait till we're, um, till we're, you know, Milan or whatever. Uh, yeah, that's but, what they saw. That's what yeah. they'll say back to that. But I mean, that's a complete lack of imagination of how you actually deal with a pandemic. I mean, the idea that you only have blunt measures and you can't take a surgical approach to uh, reduce the number of hospitalizations and to reduce the number of people who need ICU. You know, like Alberta, as I mentioned at the start of this conversation, has had for three months now cases, daily cases in the hundreds, right? I think the last couple of days we've had 300 cases a day. And yes, there might be, a reintroduction of some form of lockdown at some point if healthcare capacity does ever get to that point. But, I mean, Alberta has a much lower death rate than Victoria, yet we've had we've had these higher uh, daily case counts. How do you explain that? I, I think it just, it, it just shows a lack of imagination from the public, a lack of critical thinking from the public to say, hey, how can we surgically attack this virus? How can we prevent the spread in vulnerable populations within our community? And ultimately preserve as much freedom as possible for everyone else who isn't going to rely on the healthcare system. It seems like a pretty rational point, but you're saying a lot of people have refused to engage in that line of thinking. I don't know, man. I don't know what people's line of, uh, of thinking is, but I know that, uh, yeah, I, The problem is, Rob, that, you know, as Australians, you're most inclined to, as Victorians, your closest point of reference is the other states in, in Australia. So granted, granted. We're, relating, we're relating to that experience. We're not really relating to uh, the rest of the world because, yeah, we, we're borrowing a context of like, you know, we're, we're existing like everywhere else around the world is learning how to live with the virus. Australians and New Zealanders, maybe there's other places in the world that are too, but Australian and New Zealanders are 
trying to get rid of the virus. Right. So you guys, you guys are thinking that way and implementing policy that way because it would the cost of of trying to get rid of it entirely and the cost right. of we're uh, not an island we're not isolated you're not an island. you yeah. share a border with the united states god knows right. they can't get rid of it so you're just right. never going so that that isn't part of your thinking so you're forced to then think about okay how do we live with this uh we're not doing that we're not okay. doing that we victorians need to get rid of this virus because we're not even allowed to as victorians you know visit any other parts of the country without doing you know two weeks uh two weeks of entirely self-funded quarantine right, right. so right that's that yeah so as soon as you as soon as you start uh thinking you know with probably the maturity of oh how are we going to exist with this virus spreading in the community that changes but uh yeah it's, it's, victorians don't aren't thinking like that okay. or at least our government isn't okay so now now that sounds at least that you would be willing as someone to restrict all your freedoms and surrender the power to the government to eliminate the vi- eliminate the virus and however long it takes however many businesses need to go bankrupt however many you know uh, incidents of domestic violence and all these these unattended consequences of lockdowns need to happen um you're not saying that you'd be willing to surrender all this freedom and embrace authoritarianism like everyone else that's something that you you told me uh you told me before before we got onto air. So can you just articulate to everyone that, you know, your stance on the freedom versus safety trade-off that you think has been taking place in Australia and maybe your concern with the public's willingness to embrace authoritarianism? Hmm. So what I'd, what I'd say from the outset is that, you know, governments media the way the public engages doesn't engage chooses to free think self educate whatever it's, you know I, I you know i'd i'd be uh i'd be an outlier in my opinions on things generally right and i would <laughs> say generally generally i my the my you know my level of trust in public institutions my level of trust in the media whatever i'd be an outlier there too you know do i Am I a grand conspiracy theorist? I don't know if I'd go as far as saying I'm a grand conspiracy theorist, but I do think, um, you know, uh, ultimately there should be a really strong level of distrust. And I probably think pretty poorly of people's general level of engagement in ideas, right? So that's from the outset. So that is to say, do I think most governments are, you know, for all intensive purposes, corrupt? Yes. Do I think they serve the best interests of people? No. Do I think there's uh, a really strong level of Corporate influence in all levels of government, absolutely. Um, do I think there's crazy amounts of evidence for this all the time? Yes. Uh, so that's that's the first thing, right? The where this has terrified me at a level I've never been terrified before. You know, like, and I guess where I've better clarified the value I have in freedom and democracy is that I think now I understand where my funk where the functional value of democracy is and you know we sort of we sort of feel like we're expressing democracy when we get to vote for governments you know because we get to pick um but you know you know you know and i used to study this a lot um at uni and stuff you know politicians say they're going to do this and then they end up doing whatever they want um 
So when you when you vote for you know who you get to vote for, uh, it ends up being pretty immaterial, in my opinion, in terms of that as your functional democratic freedom. I think where democracy is more important is the way that it stops a policeman from just walking into your house because you know he needs to get a warrant or have you know some just uh, just explanation for doing so. You know, mm-hmm. I think you know how it stops the government from coming to stop you from saying something or how the mm-hmm. government is stopped. So basically the way the government is limited, I think is more functionally important in your ability to be a free person than, you know, these sort of the facade of picking what governments do. Right. Right. And then you look at COVID and you go, okay, we have all these normal things that governments can't stop us from doing these really free things, these really important to human nature things like hanging out with each other, sharing each other, playing music together, um, being able to financially trade and, you know, and, and basically I'm allowed to participate in, in, in transactions because, uh, you know, markets are available to me and, and uh, exchanging of goods and services is a really important level of freedom. All this stuff that obviously was taken for granted before it all got shut down. Mm-hmm. Now, on what on what basis did we give governments powers that they're normally never allowed to have? Right. So that, that that's 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 sort of you isolate that and you go on what basis and in, in what mechanisms did they use to do that? Now, in the case of Australia, or we can isolate it. In the case of Victoria, we've had eight hundred deaths. Right. So right. we've had less less deaths than last year's flu season right i've actually got the exact figures here just uh, just as a point of reference for everyone so there is an article that i'd recommend which was featured in the sydney morning herald and perhaps elsewhere covid19 has hammered home some uncomfortable truths about us as a people by chris ullman who's a nine news political editor and the figures exactly are that there were a thousand fewer deaths in residential aged care in the first seven months of this year compared to the same time last year. So that just gives context to everyone. So a thousand fewer deaths at the expense yeah. of, uh, you know, complete loss of freedom, economic catastrophe, debt, family breakdown, mental illness, et cetera, et cetera. So this is, and this is, you know, so again, and it, it it's why, I'll come back to it, but if you're choosing to eliminate a virus, then you need to be really clear about about why that's what you know. And so, and therefore, you've got way less margin for error. It necessitates having way more intense lockdowns, restriction of freedoms, all this sort of stuff. So, we come back to that. But the government, like, there's really sound reasons why the government can't do stuff it's been doing at the moment. They, that's just, it's called freedom. It's called democracy, right? Right. So, you know, and so we, foundational we choose, values that we, yeah, foundational values. So, you know, police could probably solve more murders, catch more pedophiles, prosecute right. more, more rapists, right. all these things, you know, but we choose to make it harder for them by forcing them to grant warrants and justify their behavior and, and, um, and, and constantly having to prove why they should be allowed to, to do intense things like arrest you and search your house and all this sort of stuff. We constantly make it hard for them. We do it on purpose. We do it on purpose because we think that, you know, your rights and freedoms are important. Right. You know, you Potential can't- for it, misuse, et cetera, right, et cetera. All this stuff, right? But in, in, in COVID, we've said, no, 
we want them to be able, we don't care about those things anymore as much as we care about right. what we're trying to achieve. So the what virus are we, is the right. ultimate overarching objective. Right. Yeah. And in this case, it's been eliminating it. Now, what, why, you know, why? And so unfortunately you have to actually participate in a, in a, okay. So what are the value of these freedoms and when am I willing to compromise them? And you might go, okay, well, in the situation of what's happening in New York, it might make sense. In the situation of what's happening in the northern parts of Italy, uh, the worst affected parts of Spain, London, whatever, this might make sense. In Australia, you can say, at best, we've done it preemptively to avoid harms being incurred. And then you might ask, okay, well, what level of harms have we preemptively tried to protect ourselves from so like you know you could build this in different ways one way for example might be okay what level of the virus would i be willing to accept that might be one way and so you go well you know an amount of the virus that's killed less people than the flu killed last year is clearly an inadequate amount Right, so right. you might tolerate five times the deaths yeah. from the flu last year. You might choose ten times the deaths of last year because no freedom anywhere in Australia was limited due to the amount of flu that was killing people last year. Exactly. So exactly. So it's so an absurdity to say we would like negative yeah. XX deaths, right? Yeah. So to, to, that's a benchmark you've got, and then you go, well, if the flu was twice as bad as it was last year, would we have maybe put in more restrictions for people visiting aged care facilities? You know. If it was 10 times worse than last year, would we have maybe uh, implemented, you know, X, X, Y, and Z policies, right? But that, that, that creates a benchmark. Right. So under, under, that, under that, that, that's one way you might do it. Another way you might do it is you might go the effectiveness of policies. So for example, you might as a government put, put a law in place that says, I don't want people going to each other's houses anymore. And you might go, okay, that's fair enough. Because that's necessary. What you don't have to accompany me that with is greater level of police powers that they normally don't have to enforce such laws. Right. So you might choose to go, okay, this is what we want society to do. We mm -hmm. want society to stop doing this and stop doing that. But mm -hmm. police are going to have the same level of powers to enact those policies as they do normally. Right. You know? So, and again, you might... Because you might say, we don't need to give the police greater powers until where it's being shown that their normal amount of powers isn't enough. Right. Right? That, that, could, be, that could be a way of going about it. <clears throat> but this is, not, this is not what's... But you would only be caring about these perspectives if you had an inherent value on the limitation of police powers and government powers in the first place. Right. And it seems like every time they've been demolished, outside right. of the bar council really freaking out about, and some lawyers and judges freaking out about these proposed uh, arbitrary detention powers. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and I think another <clears throat> another aspect of this is why haven't the government entrusted individuals and communities to stop the spread of the virus? So there's this idea that it's a very bureaucratic idea, which is that 
the only way we can stop this thing, the only way that we can prevent the spread is through top-down action, right? Leaving no space whatsoever for the fact that in the absence of lockdowns, people will lock down themselves. I mean, people often point out Sweden as this example of some, you know, libertarian utopia in terms of its response to COVID. But if you actually look at Sweden, they had an 8% contraction to their GDP because people shut themselves down, right? The idea that businesses uh, wouldn't try to make their environments as safe as possible, the idea that, you know, people wouldn't voluntarily wear masks, the idea that, that, that people wouldn't um, voluntarily reduce their connectivity with their community and their friends is absurd. People, uh, I believe that part of freedom and part of living in a, a democratic, uh, liberal democratic country is a, an acknowledgement that um, p- people have responsibility and people can solve social problems on an individual level without requ- requiring an overwhelming degree of collectivist top-down action now of course there's a degree of nuance here perhaps there are some top-down restrictions which are needed but by and large it seems like victoria's response has has acted as if uh victorians would be participating in you know 50 people orgies and spreading the virus willy-nilly and a complete uh a a lack of understanding or, or or a lack of trust in individuals to do the right thing yeah well that yeah, but you've got no tolerance of people doing the wrong thing in a situation where you've got community transmission established and you're trying to eliminate the virus. So that the problem is, Rob, there's no tolerance in Victoria for the virus spreading. So, yeah, if, you're, if you were trying to have a society that with a few government measures plus some just decent, thoughtful, you know, social responsibility you could probably and a decent healthcare system you could probably you know have the virus spread you know probably kill and the people it kills is the people it kills um so you're obviously going to have death from the virus but you won't have the destruction of society that's not what we're trying to do what we're trying to do is get to zero like the rest of the country now the rest of the country uh is at zero because it basically never left zero Uh, so that's so that all those states all the rest of Australia has gotten to zero without any of this crazy regulation, any of this crazy destruction of their freedoms outside of, right. you know, sort of four, eight-week blocks. Victoria's, like the Victorian government probably can't do that. Definitely can't right. do that because there was widespread community transmission. Um, so it's out there. And then, uh, yeah, to get it under control, everything needed to be sort of, you know, destroyed. But like, the, you know, I, I guess... For me, you know, maybe in 12 months, you know, let's say the Victorian government's successful, you know, and in three, four months, you know, we're like Queensland or Western Australia or New South Wales. And, you know, you can have, you know, I can't have anyone, no one's allowed to visit me at my house, zero. Um, And it's been like that for months and months and months. Maybe in three months time, I can have 30 people over at my house and I'll, I'll stop caring. But you know, the we're going for this policy because the rest of the country is like that, and we need to catch up. And I'm sure that's basically why it's happening. The the 
because politically, if you know, if the South Australian Premier starts getting a shitload of cases and he asks, you know, where they've come from, and it's because he's let Victorians come in, and then it's a shit, it's a shit solution right. for him and him, whatever. Everything's so it's quite, Victoria. Yeah, yeah. but the re, yeah, but the reason we've the reason we've we're suffering all this is because governments have the option to decide what level of virus they want to be. Right. That's my problem. So my problem is right. they shouldn't have the right to decide what amount of virus should be in the community outside of right. um, it being awful. So for example, if I implement a state of disaster because some earthquake has come in and fucked my city, right? The day that I announce my state of disaster, presumably the earthquake has destroyed a bunch of buildings and there's all this measurable harm. Right. It's like state of disaster because X, Y, and Z, roads are fucked, this building's been smashed, this has been destroyed, all this stuff's happened, so I need to implement a state of disaster. This government has implemented a state of disaster based on the experience of other countries and what might happen. Right. A potential earthquake. Potential earthquake, right? So a potential earthquake. Not only that, but a potential earthquake... With the accompanying powers... With the accompanying powers, and you know, we could decide how bad the earthquake needs to be as a society. Right. And we're choosing for it in this case to be zero earthquake. In fact, yeah. you know, better than our normal earthquake season. Yeah. Now, so to me, that's totally, t- totally unacceptable. Yeah. So the point is, governments just shouldn't be able right. to get rid of freedoms that we consider crazily important. Right. All of the rest of the time, based yeah. on the amount of earthquakes they want to have happen. That shouldn't be their choice. It, it, they, they should be like, you know, they, they shouldn't be able to get powers till the place is trashed or right. until it's certain the place is going to get trashed. And you might say, hang on, why would I, why wouldn't I want my government to be able to step in before awful things happen? Because right. <laughs> governments ought not to be trusted. That's right. And and, 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 and that needs to be point. built into the system. And That's that- right. <laughs> and case in point is the fact that they butchered hotel quarantine. If they were such a perfectly uh, omniscient, wise body, uh, which n- no government official could ever possibly be, but if they had an amazing track record, potentially, potentially there's an argument in favor of it, but there's just a history of corruption, a history dude, of mistakes. Dude, the, the, the corrupt, corruption, the corruption, uh, if you, look, f- proving federal government corruption is less common. State government corruption in Australia, you, the amount of different state governments <laughs> you can pull up and go, there were potentially shady things all the way to Eddie Obeid is currently in jail. Right. <laughs> and right. under under and and was and was and and that labor government in new south wales were was like so transparently corrupt for such a long period of time right. it's like unbelievable right uh, you know the, the previous the previous state government in australia the liberal state government in australia you know you have uh you know the planning minister matthew fucking greasy guy matthew you know, guy hanging out Hanging out, hanging out with 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 uh, you know, ordering lobsters with mobsters uh, and lobster all the rest with of the mobsters. Right? We we, we know <laughs> we know governments are uh, uh, vulnerable to corruption and they're corrupt all right. the time and they're caught all the time. Even like right now, IBAC, I think yesterday or today, uh, you know, has released all of these uh, like you know as, uh, is going to prosecute um, the guy that was sleeping with the premier for all these different. Uh, 
uh, forms of corruption, you know, right, uh, right. You know get, letting people pay for their visas and all, you know, getting paid to uh, for approvals and all this stuff. We know governments are corrupt. We know they abuse powers. We also know that they're driven by self-interest and for political purposes. And in right. my opinion, COVID has become a political football. The amount of cases your state has, the way that you restrict borders, being hard-lined on a border, you know, governments care about being elected. Generally, I think the two main drivers of government are being elected, so winning elections, and the reason you want to win elections is so you can grant political, you can grant favors to important people, uh, right. so that you spend the rest of your life um, then, sort of getting benefits off them. Now that's, and then that's in a very turn, those opi- important people can help you get reelected. It's a they cycle. Get, well, they help you get they help you get reelected, but ultimately you don't want to be in government for any longer than you need to be to grant enough favors to leave government work. And then get really nice cushy jobs <laughs> afterwards for all the people you granted favors for, right? So the, right. The, the natural progression is you work in government for a bit, you grant important people enough favors that that you get to leave, and then after you leave, you get to make a lot of cash sitting on the board of an important company. Now that's that's a very negative perspective on government. That's what I think government effectively does. The point is, you've got to have a system that says government can't be trusted. That's why you have all these limitations, right? When you're deciding that emergency measures should get rid of such limitations, those emergency measures need to be really fucking big, really important, really bad. Right. And what I feel has happened in Australia is we've inherited the pandemic from overseas from a fear perspective, but not from a actual disaster perspective and that that con that context has, has allowed we're our acting, government to do everything it does yeah we're acting as if we're northern italy when in reality we got nowhere close to northern italy where where we you know having a hundred cases a day and a health system that's totally fine would be the envy of anywhere in the world just like it is for right. you right now in canada and where we've instead you know participating in in some numbers obsessed game you know some fucking rat race to zero right uh and yeah we've chosen we've 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 allowed you know freedom limitations to be acceptable under that context and to me it's just crazy exactly And 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 i think i think generally a big big driver of that is that people don't i think people have a nostalgic value on freedom And I also think people just trust governments way too much. Right. I also think people don't really appreciate the value of freedom uh, because Australia just generally grants a lot of freedom. And, uh, you know, I think, I think, who did I hear say this? I, I forgot who it was, but I was listening to a podcast and they say, in countries which have freedom, you're more likely to see protests arguing for the government to take away their freedom and in countries that don't have freedom or live under authoritarianism, they're more likely to have protests asking for their freedom off governments. And so sure. Australia is so far high up, generally speaking, on the freedom spectrum that I think people don't realize what it would be like if they didn't have that freedom permanently, and it's why they don't fight for it. Um, and I think it's another beautiful thing of the US Constitution, and Australia doesn't really have... Uh, a powerful constitution in the same way that um, America does. But the the constitution in the U.S. is there to remind people 
of why freedom is such a foundational value and it and it provides a, a robust check on government powers to say you know in some cases there's nothing you can do to limit someone's speech in the US there isn't it free speech is pretty much an absolute right in in US it doesn't care if it's if you're spouting racism it doesn't care if you're spouting a conspiracy it's such a foundational right that it's embedded in the constitution and there's nothing you can do to take that away it feels like that's something that Australia doesn't really have i know you and i have actually spoken about this in the past but australia doesn't have a bill of rights almost uh, as a reminder why we care about these freedoms and that's why it's so easy for someone like dan andrews to take them away yeah, I think it's a massive contributor. Yeah, like we don't have we don't have explicit we don't have explicit rights and freedoms in our constitution. We do have a human rights charter in Victoria, funnily enough, um, which actually did <laughs> restrict a few things the chief health officer could make people do. One of them was being able to exercise. So that was if they could have, they would have kept us indoors. Wow, there you go. <laughs> That's a seven. small win for the but, human rights but, charter. But <laughs> the human rights charter basically said if people can't exercise, and this, so they couldn't even stop people who actually had the virus from leaving their rooms, leaving their if they lived in an apartment or something, they had to have the right to go outside and exercise. That's because interesting. It meant that having, it meant that it was a form of imprisonment. And you basically can't imprison anyone who isn't imprisoned. Mm-hmm. So you had to have the right to exercise. It was interesting. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's just, you know, oh, thank God we got protected to go outside for one hour walks. Um, yeah, I just think, look, it's just Victorians need to decide whether they're comfortable with this statement that we've experienced the least amount of virus compared to anywhere of the world, probably except for like New Zealand or whatever. Mm-hmm. And we've experienced the world's, you know, give or take the world's worst lockdown. That's right. So you can, you know, and, 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 and then you've got to ask yourself as a Victorian, why have we done this? Now, I, I think the main reason is politics amongst the states of Victoria, right? So amongst and the, the politics, states of Australia, right? Sorry, amongst the states of Australia. Yes. And, and everyone's trying to, you know, wanting to be the zero state. They were all able to achieve it. We weren't. They started closing borders. Um, and basically, uh, the majority of the states, because they were able to achieve elimination, basically meant Australia had to go down an elimination path. So... We should make no mistake about why we've done this. We have not done this to not become Italy. We have not done this to protect the health system. We have not done this to to uh, protect older Australians and vulnerable Australians. We've 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 done this uh, because of politics, mm-hmm. right? So that's that's why we've done this. Now, are politicians honest about the reasons they do things? The reasons why they bring tax cuts? The reasons why a particular company's won won a bid to for a five billion dollar infrastructure project? No, governments always not. lie to us. They're always shit. But the government, <laughs> in the that's okay. The rest of the time, because when the government decides to do things, you know, change taxes, build bridges, right. uh, <clears throat> award contracts for infrastructure projects, when the government does that. It needs when to the go government through does, due process. It needs to well, go through, yeah. Not re- yeah, but but but, but th- that's the stuff that we allow government to do all the time regularly that we're not that worried about. We should be, and we sort of want to elect governments who do a, do a better job of that than a shit job of that, but that's okay. You know, politics can be the reason for, for taxes going up or down. Politics shouldn't be a reason for why you have or shouldn't have rights. Right. And that's that's what I'm saying. I'm saying that that in this, you know, this is probably the, the the clearest way I've explained it. That the reasons for why we've gone down 
the path we've gone down as a country has nothing to do with ultimately protecting us from the virus it, in a way that would be acceptable. It's got to do with, with, with reasons that aren't that. And so governments should be limited in their ability to do what they've done so that they can't just decide when it's acceptable. And I can't, I can't yeah, believe that. Yeah, I, I can't believe that really we don't have. Point. I don't believe that. I can't believe we don't have constitutional mechanisms that stop them from doing this. But I think that's a really important point. One, one other angle of potentially looking at this is yes, I agree with your analysis, but this is something I've noticed living abroad, living both in the Netherlands and in Canada. Australia generally has a safety fetish, not seen on a level in most democratic countries. So, you know. It's strange to me. It's 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 ironic that progressives in Australia would generally be supportive of these safety COVID measures to prevent deaths, but then they wonder why they don't get interesting reform on things like marijuana legislation. You know, it's no surprise that Canada has uh, legalized marijuana before any state in Australia. It's no surprise that we have now 10, potentially 20 states in America who have done the same. Um, you know, it's no surprise that in Australia you can't access, you know, a jewel or a vape uh, to, uh, to potentially help you not smoke cigarettes. You know, it's no surprise why cigarettes cost about $100 in Australia. It's no surprise why you have to wear helmets everywhere. There's a level of safety that Australians have um, almost internalized that safety trumps freedom at pretty much every every corner. And then if you're willing to grant the government powers to do that in the preceding decades, then don't complain when the government prioritizes safety over your freedom in the case of a pandemic. Um, so that's something that like, I, I, I've definitely noticed living abroad is that, you know, Australia is a strange place for how strongly we prioritize safety. It's why, it's why we have speed cameras on pretty much every third intersection. You know, these are these are strange things to someone in Canada, to someone in the Netherlands, to someone in Western Europe, to someone in America. And I don't think a lot of Australians have fully understood that. Um, is that something that you've noticed? Yeah, I mean. Yeah, I think, I think it's, I think, I think, yeah, I think you're right. And I think it is a, it is a contributor, you know, you could nanny state, whatever you want to call it. Um, You know, we're super regulated here. We got, you know, it's like, you know, increases the costs of a lot of things, uh, you know, like how strict we are with occupational health and safety and stuff. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's, there's. Yeah, I mean, look, being forced to wear a helmet, being forced to wear a seatbelt, whatever. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a pretty transparent transaction there. I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm losing the freedom to not have to wear a helmet, but you know, we're gaining. What are we gaining? We're gaining, you know, probably less fatal bicycle accidents, whatever it is that we're gaining in that right. situation. Can you draw a connection between, you know, not wearing a helmet, uh, being forced to wear a helmet, and then not being allowed to have any friends at your house, have any gatherings, have police walk into your property whenever they want, arbitrary detention, all this sort of stuff? 
I reckon it's I reckon there's probably a little bit of a relationship there, but you would have thought that people understand the pretty massive difference between having to wear a helmet and not being able to see your friends and have real relationships anymore and have any kind of freedom whatsoever. So I don't know. I think is there an overall I put it this way. If I if I could if I could get rid of if it is if it is the helmets wearing and the compulsory seatbelts and the stupid drug legislation and it is that attitude that's that makes uh Victorians just more susceptible to uh the level of government invasion that we've experienced during this pandemic, then yeah, I'd be happy to fuck all that stuff off. Absolutely. Right. But I, I, uh, yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't I, you know, to be honest, man, I, I need, I need to live elsewhere. Um, understand <laughs> other communities better. I mean, I understand that right. you know, places like America and Canada right. better appreciate freedoms than we do in Australia, but I don't know. We seem pretty keen to, to regulate here. I would agree with that. Right. Right. Another good point on this, Jules, is something that you mentioned off there is an inability for the public uh, to see the opportunity cost of these measures and how more lives could have been saved if we didn't go down this really costly lockdown. Do you mind elaborating on that? Yeah. So, I mean, look, there's, I'm sure there's lots of resources out there, but, uh, you know, I've got two perspectives on this. So one, I've got uh, an immunity deficiency. So I, I, my body doesn't produce any IgA, immunoglobulin A. Uh, I don't know what the data is on how much worse people experience COVID with this, but, you know, I'm sure it's worse. Um, mm-hmm. So there's that. The second is, you know, I lost my grandmother this year and my, um, you know, and ha- what she died of is kind of unclear, but um, it was some sort of cold thing. Right. You've got some her lungs, skin her lungs, in the game here. You've got some skin in the game, but she didn't die of COVID, but she died of some sort of cold, you know. Um, So why am I bringing this up? Okay, so, you know, ethically, right, we're choosing to to do things to protect a part of the community that's going to die from the virus, right? I mean, and we know that that percentage, particularly with better treatment now and when you don't have a healthcare that's overwhelmed, so that is to say that everyone experiencing the virus gets treatment, so... Um, so you make sure that the, the that the amount of the virus that's in the community isn't so great that you can't treat everyone. So that that was clearly increasing the death rate. If I can't give right. people ventilators when they're at the most acute period of experiencing the illness, their chances of dying is way higher. So not taken into account. So assuming that that, that that everyone gets the best possible treatment, right? The people who die from the virus are overwhelmingly people who are unwell, right? So. Right. Um, unwell as a consequence of being real old and therefore having a shitload of comorbidity. So the mm-hmm. amount of illness you have in your life is way higher when you're older and you're just, you're less healthy when you're older generally, right? We just know that to be true. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, if you've got diabetes, if you've got cancer, if you've got potentially autoimmune disease or, or like I have um, a genetic, uh, genetic immunity impairment, um, you're just less healthy, right? I mean, we can grab my health records and I can clearly show everyone <laughs> my exposure to illness over my twenty, my soon to be twenty seven years of life has been way and higher. The audience than won't know this, but Jules pretty much didn't attend a single day of school in year eleven <laughs> because, <laughs> because yeah. his health record wasn't that crash shot. So, so yeah, so there's 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 some serious health issues there, right? Cool. So the point is. 
I think it's fair to say that people who are dying from COVID uh, are definitely not going to be um, have less years of life expectancy available to them than people who aren't dying. An ordinary right? healthy so, person, sure. Yeah, now that's true of anyone who just dies of in their old age. But it, it it's it's interesting. Like my my grandmother, you know, she was only reason she was alive was because of the twenty medications she was taking every morning. Right. If she wasn't taking all those medications, she'd definitely be dead. Right. And in fact, she'd had previous hospital visits that meant, you know, if we didn't have miraculous uh, medical interventions, she'd be dead. Like a shitload of people who are alive in their 80s and 90s, even their 70s. If it isn't for awesome modern medicine, they'd be dead. Does that make their lives less valuable? Uh, depends how you want to context that question. Uh, does it mean that um, someone who's healthy, who's otherwise healthy, but is 18 years old and has lost their kidney due to a car accident, should they get their kidney over my grandmother who's, um, you know, 89 and only being kept alive by a shitload of medications and might die for a whole range of reasons in the next five years? Yes. So she should not get that, that kidney or that liver or that heart. Right. An otherwise healthy 18 year old definitely should. What does our current medical system say? It explicitly gives it to the 18 year old, right? We've, we've already had this discussion in medicine. We yeah. already know how we make that decision. So, you know, you, you can choose to, there's two ways of doing it. You could, you could, you could choose to have a philosophical discussion around, you know, whose lives are worth more based on, on medical interventions, or you could just choose what we've been doing for the last 30 years, which is that we already make that decision every day as doctors. And we choose to give that that kidney, that organ, that blood, whatever that intervention is to the, the younger, mm -hmm. more healthy person. So we already do that. And right. it doesn't seem like we were turning the world upside down uh, last year about preferencing healthier people right. over unhealthier people, right? So COVID is potentially killing a shitload of people that are otherwise going to die pretty soon. They're fragile. They're, yeah. they're, not, they're not healthy. Now, it's not always doing that. Right, and we've seen evidence of that. But the gr great amount of data is that you know, even when it's 40, right. 30 year olds, you know, people who aren't in their eighties and nineties, it's thirty, forty year olds that are over overrepresented as being obese. Yeah. Type two diabetes is probably the major one, right? I think it's likely to be similar in Victoria, but here in Alberta, I believe it still stands that the average death of an Albertan due to COVID is actually higher than the li the average life expectancy period. Yeah. Yeah, there yeah. you go. Yeah. So and like and so you know I don't know I don't know what the data is there. Now you might so you're starting to descend into an uncomfortable ethical discussion about who lives and dies, what the value of a life is or whatever. But I just put it this way. My grandmother died of whatever the she died of. Like, you know, in the end her lungs ended up full of fluid. Um and, you know, her heart stopped. God bless her. If she died of the flu, if she died of gastro, if she died of whatever virus, and if she died of COVID, I mean, I can't be certain, but I'd be, you know, <laughs> my grandparents were directly opposed to lockdown, you know, and just were like, you know, yeah. people, when viruses come, people have to die. That was their approach. But, the point Same is, as my grandparents. What? Yeah, whatever. But whatever, whatever she died of, man, she died of being old, and f she died of being old as old as yeah. and unhealthy. Yeah, whatever, whatever that final thing is that pushes your your grand your really frail old grandparent off the edge. You know, I mean, if they're in a, if they're in a nursing home, the point is they can no longer care for themselves at home. So yeah. you can't be in a nursing home unless 
you know, you need care and right. you, you, so you're, you're not well, you're at the end of your life. Right. And the thing that gets you in the end, you don't say, oh yeah, no, my, my 92 year old, you know, uncle died of gastro, died of old age. Hmm. And as, as human beings, when we lose the ability, and this is my opinion, but when we lose the ability uh, uh, to fight the illnesses that show up every year, mm-hmm. the diseases and the, and the viruses that show up every year, generally that's the flu. And we no longer have the ability to fight that, whether that's because our body's been so decimated by chemotherapy or by uh, immune suppressant drugs because our autoimmune thing is so out of control or because we're just so old or, you know, our heart's so weak because of our, our diabetes, whatever it is. We don't go, oh, he died of the flu. You know, we, we, we've got the maturity and the perspective to understand that that death is attributable yeah. to just a person no longer being able to function as a human because right. functioning as a human means you can handle the diseases that show up every year. Right. Right. But our so, discussion has been unable to no, you die, have you an die awareness of, COVID, of that. No, yeah. every COVID death is like some major tra- tragedy. It's a huge stat. It's, it's, it's an absolute disaster. Yeah. It's, it, it's, and it's, it's, it's a death that definitely wouldn't have happened otherwise. It's a death because of COVID. Right. And it's just bullshit. It's just not true. And what's, but what is, you know, the difference with COVID is, okay. So the amount of people that die from COVID, if they're going to, if they, if those people are going to die from that, from, from some other reason due to their human, due to their frailty of health in the next four to five years. And that's a crazy majority, right. a crazy proportion of the amount of deaths that result from COVID, then that needs to be taken into consideration. Right. It can't not be. That is just bullshit. Yeah. It's just totally unfair on all of the people, of- all of the people you've chosen to kill by protecting those people. And that's right. why it's important. It's right. not like we've chosen to protect the lives of all these people vulnerable for COVID without killing a bunch of other people. You know, we've killed a shitload of people as a consequence of taking care of, 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 of protecting right. the vulnerable against COVID. So we've killed them because a, of yeah, mental health. We've mental killed health. them because of poverty. Yep. We've killed them because they've all deferred uh, all this medical treatment and medical examination. That means when they find their cancer, eventually it's going right. to be the incurable kind, not That's the curable right. kind. Like, like and, I'm pretty and, sure and, in the and, UK, they're predicting an extra 60,000 deaths from cancer over the next 10 years because of, um, the way COVID has distorted the general operation of the healthcare system. If, if you catch bowel cancer as a as a fifty year old at its early stage, your chances of like, bowel cancer is the most uh, fatal uh, cancer in Australia. It's also the most treatable because it captured early, right? So right. you know, someone early someone ID. who catches their someone who catches their bowel cancer early lives for another forty years, right? right? Lives for another fifty years. Right? right, someone who, someone who, someone who's going to die of COVID is likely to only be alive yeah. for a, another couple of years. So that's the Peter Singer assessment of you know the framework of using years lost versus years of life lost, and that's essentially right. what you're that's, arguing so that's, for us to that's, consider. That's one component. That's yep. component A. B is dying the only measurable harm. So you know this was this is you know, I'm pretty much. Uh, you know, Singer's very transparent. He's and he's very. You know, the reason why probably you know Singer's. Uh, you know, it, we're just using a bit of logic here, right? You, you don't have to agree with this, but I'm pretty much 
quoting Singer um, bang on, but it's, it's still important. You know, any utilitarian assessment of this. The second way of looking at it is, okay, so now we're measuring the harm of deaths. What about the harm of, of what, about, what about the emotional, psychological, and economic right. harms? All these harms matter also, right? So, for example... Uptick in suicide, you know, uptick in depression, uptick in anxiety. Up to poverty, up to, poverty. Up to the fact that... Yeah, they believe that, the, that uh, just this year already, this isn't a forecast, but we've added, as a globe... 37 million people to poverty. Yeah, and a lot of them are going to starve and miss out on their educations. Children won't be able to go to school. And, doubling and, you know, of child malnutrition across the world, a doubling of extreme poverty by the end of next year. So yeah. that so, really frames it for everyone. <laughs> yeah, so so like the, 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 the point is the costs of this are enormous and it's not you – it's not fair to pretend like every every uh, life that can be saved from uh, lockdowns or um, or that every COVID death um, needs to be considered a tragedy. Well, I mean, this also highlights the hypocrisy of Daniel Andrews, who says, "I'm not in the position of picking who dies." Well, he can't avoid it. The lockdown does discriminate against who dies. He's he's saying that he'd rather save someone who's ninety years old and frail and catches COVID. He's 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 concerned about preventing that person from dying, but he's choosing for uh, you know potentially um, you know a middle aged Victorian man who loses his business, develops alcoholism, and then kills himself. He is choosing who dies and who's saved. So. Uh, that's, you know, complete nonsense coming from Daniel Andrews and no one really calls that out. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's right. So, and, and, and also they choose all the time, you know, like certain, you know, like if a new awesome cancer drug comes out, uh, that isn't just automatically given access to every Australian. Right. You know, it's like, you know, you have to, they have to pay for it themselves. If we don't, we don't, we don't, um, you know, we don't. We could. There are so many. There are so many different health issues. I mean, this is what that. Right. This is what that um, specialist said to me. You know, he's like, if you just call COVID a health issue, um, imagine if we approached other health issues like this, it yeah. would be crazy. Now, COVID, when the health system is crashing, <laughs> right. is not just the health issue. It's a that's a that's a massive societal issue, right? Yeah, like, sure. Like like hospitals becoming overflown and and hospitals no longer being able to um, yeah. uh, implement g- good. My good catching inf- of COVID directly affects you as someone who's unrelated to me because now you don't get access to healthcare, etc. Yeah, and and people who work in hospitals uh, no longer have the ability to implement infection control mm-hmm. and working working in a hospital becomes uh, way more dangerous than it normally should be. Granted. That, 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 so that there, that that's an important issue. So yeah, you know, I mean, working in a hospital ne- necessitates you have an increased exposure to viruses and diseases, particularly if you work in infectious diseases or whatever. So that's that's normally there, um, but they norm, you know, but they they train and they wear gloves and all this stuff. But yeah, people catch gastro and 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 viruses in hospitals more often than otherwise. But God. there's an acceptable level of that that can be acceptably mitigated. Mm-hmm. Clearly. When the hospitals are just fucked on with COVID, um, that that exposure to healthcare workers is just unfair, right? Yeah. So that 
that that's 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 an that's an ethical consideration. Uh, again, you know, we that's that's not that when that becomes an issue is a lot higher than fucking ten cases a day, twenty yeah. cases a day, fifty yeah, cases a day. Absolutely. Or, Another example of this opportunity cost, Jules, is the Victorian economy, I believe, is going to contract, some people are saying, $320 billion or something to that effect due to the lockdown alone. Now, if if the Victorian economy were $320 billion richer, presumably we could afford to invest in more hospitals, more hospital beds, uh, better doctors, better nurses, and that can also reduce the number of deaths, not this year, but in in the years to come. Does that get spoken about? Yeah, or the fact that every time a government chooses to spend money on a th- on something, it's money that could be spent elsewhere. That's so, right. So you know, like last year, we chose to, I don't know, you know, what did we what did we choose to do last year? You know, hand out hand, every dollar we spent last year could have been used instead on domestic violence, on mental on illness, th- on on this new level of treatment, on yeah, this level of mental illness, this level of this. Like we're constantly, you know, last year we could have. We could have chosen to hand out less grants to uh, AFL clubs to to build their nice professional facilities, right. and instead use that money to uh, house um, to house victims of domestic violence. Yeah. And probably could have saved people. We didn't do that last year. Last right. year we could have, uh, yeah, we we could have we could have you know had uh, we could have increased the scope of of subsidising uh, mental health visits to psychologists, which we've done this year. <laughs> Um, we could have done that last year. We chose not to. Instead, we, right. you know, uh, we handed out tax breaks to, you know, we, we, like, we're always deciding who gets to live and die by That's government right. policy. Right. Always. And and when you spend a three hundred billion dollars yeah. uh, on one particular health issue. That's three hundred billion dollars that you know could have just been given to aid to poor countries if we wanted, and kept a shitload of fucking ten year olds alive mm-hmm. and given them mm-hmm. an education. Mm-hmm. And built built them schools and hospitals, you know. So it's like uh, the the problem when you go down this rabbit hole is, you know, the reason why Peter Singer ends up with comp with uh, controversial propositions is because he follows through the ethical consequences of decisions to their fullest level, right. And so you start looking at every dollar you earn as an individual as, you know, I could buy a nice brand new pair of shoes or I could donate that money to some sort of charity that helps keep a young person involved. So if I'm honest about money, if I'm honest about the hours I spend in my life and I'm, then I'm, and I, and I, and I, I take the ethical cost of my decisions to their maximum, basically everything I do that isn't taking care of my most important needs is an opportunity to help someone that I'm not taking, right? Mm-hmm. So now that's that's a very extreme level, but that that is reality. Yeah. So no, of course, uh, gov- governments do that all the time, and we've chosen we to do. keep unhealthy people alive at the expense of a whole lot of other people, and that's that's important to understand. Yeah, absolutely, Jules. So I think the last topic I really want to discuss here is mm, so we've outlined why. All of this has been an enormous encroachment in civil liberties, why that never should have happened in the first place. But I think one component of why it's been allowed to happen is just the general state of journalism. So something I've noticed living outside of uh, Australia, of course, is 
that there seems to be the public attacking journalists, the few journalists who do ask tough questions of Dan. There's a, you know, a common line, don't play uh, politics in a pandemic or he's doing the best he can or you know you know he had a hundred press conferences in a hundred days um you know he's doing the best he can and there was one journalist uh, i got a name up here um baxin uh, sorry uh, uh what's her surname her surname is baxendale i i don't have it rachel baxendale that's it <laughs> sorry about that Rachel Baxendale, she asked a question to, of Daniel Andrews and saying, hey, is it really fair? Is it really fair if we expect um, someone in the countryside to be forced to wear a mask when they're going for a walk and there isn't someone in a one kilometer square radius of them? And I believe Dan Andrews just criticized her as uh, indulging some type of esoteric discussion. And then in the the following days, all over Twitter, there were memes uh, mocking Rachel Baxendale for asking a like an esoteric question when it's a very valid question to ask about some of these restrictions. So it it seems to me from the outside that there's a risk premium placed on journalists asking tough questions of those in power um, that goes that falls outside of the traditional scope of this of discussion that the mainstream media institution will allow is that something that you've been noticing as well uh yeah but i'd uh you know i mean i sort of said this before i feel like i'm an outlier in you know my opinions on things my opinions on but you know uh, i yeah journalism fails to hold uh, politicians to account yeah and generally and you know even if even if what you're saying is true and that you know journalism journalists are sort of um coerced you know by you know in this case ridicule and um and sort of uh, ostracized by their own community for wanting to uh participate in something contrary to the current narrative, mm-hmm. yeah, you, know, you ask politicians questions, they just give you, even if, even if they were asking really good questions and the one who do, the ones who do ask really good questions, mm-hmm. they don't get satisfactory answers. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, like I, uh, and, and there's a limit to how, you know, if journalists sort of have a responsibility inbuilt in their profession to, eventually accept the terms of of governments you know it's like you know i remember uh this is this is you know if someone isn't australian they're definitely not going to remember this but tony abbott was opposition leader for like eight years he became prime minister him and uh, joe hockey implemented their first budget which is like the you know probably 90 percent of a government's uh quantifiable policy agenda and i would say the greatest majority of of this budget was uh was stuff that no one had ever seen before and right. flew and was entirely uh, uh, in opposition to a whole lot of explicit promises made by yeah in the election right so 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 it, it was it would it was the equivalent of buying a product and then having or having that product be not at all what it was advertised right right 
So the beginning of so and then when when a budget's passed in Australia, the sort of convention is for for the treasurer to go on the seven thirty report on ABC, our national government funded broadcaster, and get interviewed by uh, by the you know uh, the leading Australian political journalist. Right. So the interview begins, Rob, and you'd be proud of the journalist. I can't. I think it was Sarah Ferguson. God bless her. And she begins the interview by saying to Joe Hockey, "You know, how does it feel to just treat the population with utter contempt and do whatever you want as a politician?" So it begins by asking a hard question, right? Right. So it's like, how how, how can how, how is it acceptable that you just do whatever you want, even though you you were in opposition for eight years advertising something, and now you've just done you've done a whole bunch of policies that no one had ever heard of yeah. before. You know, this this is this Completely flies in the face the of democracy, right? Now, does Joe Hockey engage with that question seriously? No, they they to and fro for about two or three minutes, and then the details of what the government's announced are discussed. Right. That's journalism. <laughs> journalism doesn't have the opportunity to just all of a sudden go, hang on, this is totally unfair. Hang on, this is not what should be happening. Hang on, and just hold them account to that. You can make a little bit of a stand as a journalism, call out something, but ultimately you've got to participate in the narrative of reality. And and reality is what what what, what were we going to yeah. do? You know, like, like all mean, of a sudden take massive protests and turn over a government. Like, I feel like, you know, I guess the thing I want to communicate is relying on journalism to hold politicians to account enough so that they do the right thing is silly and stupid. And and, and it's not going to happen. It's going to happen to an extent, but it's not going to happen. Mm. Relying on voting for governments to do the right thing and, and voting them out when they do the, the wrong thing and voting in governments who actually care about us, it, 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 that as an accountability measure is, again, is going to work to an extent, but it's not right. really going to achieve that. What you need in place is rules that stop governments from doing things at all, hmm. like some constitution, what, like constitutions. You actually right. need real limits, and relying on journalism uh, any further than what's realistic is just like, yeah, this has been. Does the media ultimately support the narratives of governments that do fucked things? Yes. And I, I think it's always going to, particularly mainstream media. We can't be relying on journalists to stop to stop police from coming into my house whenever they want. Like that that should be built in somewhere else. Yeah. And yeah, I take your point. You know, that's 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 my point. Yeah, no, that's um I don't know if that was a really bad answer, but I think that No, no that's it. fair enough. I mean the point I was getting at is that there seems to be just an absence of journalists who are willing to ask these tough questions. It seems like when they do uh, ask a controversial question of the Premier, uh, they seem to be the only only one of a group of 20 journalists in the press club who are willing to ask that question. Uh, a lot of the journalists seem more are playing more of a role that's analogous to a uh, conduit for their press release as opposed to asking critical questions and holding them accountable. I mean, the the one exception to this now is obviously hotel quarantine. They're going pretty deep into that. But let's say the hotel quarantine didn't happen. This I don't think, Jules, there still would be these questions about um, have have has the public bargained for this security versus freedom trade-off? I think the answer is no. Um, ha- ha- what do we think of negative excess deaths? I don't think anyone's asked that question. I think um, journalists are by and large unwilling to take on these risks 
And what's what's even more corrosive than that is that when one one journalist actually does stick their head out, they're vilified not only by the public but by fellow journalists. Uh, conf- their their opposition to lockdowns, for example, is conflated with. Uh, support for conspiracy theories, uh, COVID doesn't exist, COVID is a hoax, or 5G conspiracies or anti-vax conspiracies. I mean, there was a a Guardian article today that um, it was it was talking about the five kilometer rule, how it's extremely unpopular, and for some reason, uh, it said in the article that the the quote of you know the five kilometer rule is a containment of people's freedom has been associated with 5g conspiracy groups on facebook as if what does that have to do with anything about 5g conspiracies on facebook so i think the whole media mechanism is really bizarre i think part of it has to do with um people afraid afraid that they'll be called out they that they, they they aren't willing to take a risk and and I think because of that, that's why we've seen the uh, the gradual uh, removal of all these freedoms, and it's gone virtually unchecked in the media class. Yeah, I, I agree with you, and I think, um, yeah, whether that's some like deliberate masterminded thing or not, I mean, I don't know. I, I but yeah, I. But it comes back to, you know, Rob, for, for, for people to actually care about any degree of their freedom being limited, um, their economic situation being worsened or whatever, you would actually need to take time to challenge the prescribed narrative, which is, you know, why we're doing this, what we're trying to achieve, um, why it's important. And you know these these ethical discussions, these conversations, is you know even just talking about you know what is the value of my freedom, uh, what is the value of me being able to see my friends and have them over at my house and you know do things on my own private property, whatever. All this stuff is, uh, you know, it's not really the domain of sort of mainstream conversations. And you know right. what I was saying before off. Off, off our chat is what you're much more likely to write about is, you know, what life's like during COVID and how people are dating during COVID and, you know, oh, these, these new exercise trends during COVID and, uh, you know, how workplaces are going to change forever because of COVID and, mm-hmm. um, you know, all this, all this other stuff, you know, uh, and, and there was, you know, articles written by important people, uh, you know, letters written by vice chancellors of universities and Peter Singer and, all this different stuff, you know, putting forward perspectives. I've, I've heard opposing perspectives. I've seen it written in the media. I don't think it's been totally filtered out, but I think, uh, I think ultimately, yeah, that's if the government was doing something that was transparently illegal, I'm sure journalism would be going apeshit and constantly pointing out how illegal our government's behaving. Uh, it hasn't been doing stuff that's explicitly illegal and if it has been doing something illegal it has to be proven to be illegal by taking them to court so yeah i don't know i i i feel like i feel like in 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 this case i feel like journalism has been pretty well aligned to the values and expectations 
of of regular Victorians. And I think the reason why you see 5G conspiracies being related to people, you know, I don't have any 5G things. I think the virus is real. I I and I don't think we should just let the virus spread. I don't I don't not care about oldies. I don't I don't think I have extreme opinions right. on this, but I do really 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 care about the fact that I still don't understand why a policeman should just be allowed to walk into my house. Like I don't I don't understand yeah. why that needs to be why that needs to be a part of everything yeah. else that's going on. Um, but there's that, but, but unfortunately a lot of the time people who are actively posting not, um, you know, non-mainstream views on social media or whatever, they tend to be extremists, don't Mm -hmm. they? Because I think most people, like I said, who, even if they do have a care about this, and even if they do find this to be a little bit inappropriate, does focusing on it and posting about it make you feel better? Mm. Or should you just be, you know, focusing on your own mental health, making sure that you're exercising, you're going for walks. Like I feel like. Right. Most free-thinking people would rather focus on their own individual challenges, and there's a fucking shitload of individual challenges that show up during COVID, mm-hmm. uh, than choose to care that much about stuff they can't control. And I think mm-hmm. that that's the main reason, you know. And journalism still serves that purpose, Rob. Journalism isn't sitting there going, "How can I best inform a free-thinking population that right. really cares about considering?" C- considering you know the right and wrong actions of governments and really wants to know all about that i actually think most people including the well-educated would rather focus on how they can positively experience the great challenge of this rather than what governments should or shouldn't be doing because i don't think a they feel like they have that much control b i don't think they feel like participating in big ethical philosophical questions mm-hmm. c care about learning about constitutional rights and freedoms and legal rights and freedoms i don't think they give a shit about any of this no. i think what they most care about is how can they keep their family sane? How can they keep themselves sane? How can they financially survive this? How can they psychologically survive this? How can they entertain themselves um, and stay healthy? And I think that, and journalism exists to serve that function, you know, mainly Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as well. You know, what people actually want to read about what they care about. So, yeah, I, I think, and for those reasons, I just wish we had, rules that stop this from happening right so that's that's fair enough jules i mean i just want to touch on one more point related to journalism so i mean it's it's not completely fair to say no one in the press has criticized dan andrews's measures for violating people's freedoms it's often come from journalists from murdoch press who have written pretty aggressively and argued aggressively on tv that this is a huge containment of freedoms. The economic cost isn't worth it. The cost of mental health isn't worth it, all these things. And then something that I actually noticed as a, as a piece of media criticism is people are unwilling to engage with arguments coming from a particular institution, whether it's Murdoch or Fairfax, simply because of the institution that they're affiliated with. So this Murdoch press equals evil trap that I, I think people can fall victim to it's like if if a journalist happens to come from happens to be paid by rupert murdoch but they're writing an extremely logical argument about how the containment of freedoms doesn't justify the benefits that we're getting in terms of increased safety why is it that a valid argument but instead we just devolve into this you know rupert murdoch equals evil and he's trying to uh, ruin australian democracy and i think the same applies going uh the other way you know how dare this person, you know, who, who writes for The Guardian, you know, The Guardian's a, um, you know, shambolic left-wing 
communist institution. And I think it does cut both ways. But um, what do you think that says about the state of public discourse? I'm Maybe you don't care as much about journalism as, as I do, and this is why you want <laughs> this is why you want constitutional powers to just uh, to sidetrack this whole shit show. But uh, do you? Does it not frustrate you when you see that constantly? Those ad hominem attacks of people simply because of the uh, uh, the newspaper or the journalistic institution that they're associated with. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, absolutely. And I think it's, uh, you know, if, you, if you're going to, like, there's a balance. You shouldn't dismiss something just because it's from a particular outlet um, because there's not really a need to, you know, there's not a need to dismiss an argument because you've got the ability to think for yourself. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, you can, but if someone's reputation is appalling, uh, do you have? Uh, can you be justified in being suspicious uh, of of a particular perspective? Totally. Mm-hmm. So I think there's there's a mixture. Is there enough quantifiable evidence to say, uh, you know, Murdoch media outlets push uh, biases and agendas that are wrong? Sure. Uh, is it frustrating that Murdoch press is probably overrepresented um, discussions around freedom during COVID. Yeah, it is because it means that uh, a lot of progressive people are not going to listen to it because progressive people will dismiss, not going to touch it. But you know, it's, it's yeah. What what you're talking about, there's a huge, huge. uh, Yeah. I mean, you could, you could talk about, read about study the, uh, the complexities around the way people engage with media forever. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, th- th- the fact that people dismiss material based on where it comes from is, uh, I think partially valid. The fact that it happens too much of the time is yeah, a, co- a consequence of how free thinking people are in general. But, right. you know, I, I, I my, I put forward people aren't very free thinking. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let me offer one final twist and see what I get out of you. So let's assume that the pandemic disproportionately affected white collar workers. That is white collar workers could no longer work from home or uh, people weren't receiving uh, from the government in terms of unemployment benefits, you know, an amount that's equivalent to what they would receive if they were working. So they were essentially getting the same wage for not for not doing the work. So if that had flipped, so white collar workers are now out of a job. And mm-hmm. if Daniel Andrews belonged to the centre-right party, the Liberal Party, as opposed to Labor, do you think Victoria would be in the same state that it is now? No, but that's... So, so hang on, Rob. Are you saying if 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 everyone wasn't? So you're saying if welfare was inadequate for white yeah, collar so workers, welfare and in other words, like I think blue collar workers generally wouldn't support the lockdown because it's more likely to affect their livelihoods compared sure. to white collar workers. And I sure. think white collar workers disproportionately get to affect the media and what gets written and the public opinion the public opinion the opinion of the tel- the intelligentsia and i think that has a meaningful effect on the measures that dan andrews has 
been allowed to put forth. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think I think people's, uh, you know, $1,500 a fortnight or $1,200 a fortnight, depending on, on, uh, on your employment situation, uh, has definitely been the critical factor in allowing everyone to pass away their freedoms. Because, you know, the freedom you have to, to well, the freedom of employers to initiate transactions, so the freedom to trade creates the environment for the freedom to be employed. And the freedom to be employed is what creates the opportunity to, to feed yourself and buy shit. Um, that's been destroyed. Mm-hmm. And the cost of that's been deferred uh, by the government choosing to go into enormous amounts of debt and pay everyone a huge subsidy. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that that's that part of it has definitely, definitely meant that um, all of this COVID stuff has been able to happen because even though it's decimating um, workforces and populations, those you know it's being subsidised for, which is important. That would make it, you know, that would that would result in huge riots in the street and all the rest of it. It would just the whole fabric of society would collapse if if people couldn't uh, feed themselves. The group, the group that isn't being <laughs> well advocated for or being spoken about or cared about, are the small businesses that. Are just being destroyed, right? Um, right. And that group of that group of society, if they want to talk about themselves, then you know, progressive, you know, people who are being taken care of, you know, if your if your employment, if the value of your employment is pretty close to the the new government subsidy, that's right. You're in a pretty privileged position to all of a go, you know, all of a sudden make a value judgment and go, oh, this business owner just cares about their money instead yeah, of. There's an incentive to support the lockdown for sure. Yeah, but I I think look, if it was a liberal government doing this to everyone, would the situation be different? Uh, you know, if a right wing government was was in Victoria right now, would this look different? I would say, I don't. Know, my, my gut feeling is that the political need for the Victorian government, regardless of who was leader, to go down this crazy elimination route, would be there for whoever was in charge. Right. Is my gut feeling. All right, Jules. Well, on that note, I really appreciate your time. I think it's been over close to two hours now, so uh, we really dive deep on that one. Hopefully it's of use. And all all I'd say is, and this this is the really important thing that I'd say, out of everything I've said today, it's really complicated. And you can grab the ethical dilemma around COVID. You can grab the quantifiable discussion around COVID. So you can say, you know, for example, you could go, okay, does, 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 does lockdown actually result in better outcomes overall? And then you could, you know, and so that's, that's like a scientific slash economic assessment, you know, that, that involves modeling stuff that's way beyond my fucking scope. You know, what, what actually happens during lockdown? What do we understand about it? What happens when we don't do it? You know, what, 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 that's a whole separate discussion. Then if you were actually able to get objective um, you're able to get objective data on that that was accurate, then you could say, okay, ethically, which do we prefer? And what what mix is the correct mix? Then a whole separate question becomes around what are the values of freedom? What should they be? Uh, what are governments doing? Uh, what's acceptable for a government intervention in your life? When can we trust governments to do things? When can't we? Uh, what are the politics of all this? Like, why has the Victorian government decided to be so so strict about it? How does that, how is, you know, how is this sort of 
how have we been coerced into elimination due to the unique opportunity that Australia had with the virus? Like there are so many parts of this that you could talk about for hours and research and that, you know, people, whole careers could be uh, founded upon some of these inquiries. The, what I would say <laughs> as a Victorian for Victorians to deal with, and I said it before, but this, this one's this the last thing to be saying, regardless about how complicated all this and how much time you can spend discussing it, either either way, all I know is I'm a Victorian. I've experienced one of the worst lockdowns in the world, and my jurisdiction has experienced one of the lowest amounts of this virus anywhere in the world. And those two accompanying facts piss me off beyond belief and make me kind of ashamed to be part of the population group that I'm now a part of. And uh, that if that doesn't trigger you to go down a little bit of a rabbit hole into some of these inquiries, whether it's how media's done this to us or how Daniel Andrews has done this, whatever it is, if that doesn't trigger you to think about this shit and be kind of pissed off, uh, yeah, you know, you and I don't relate to each other very much. That's That's all I can say. Well, on that stellar note, That's where we'll end the episode. Jules, thanks for coming on. Thanks very much, Rob. All the best. I think they're all insane. And one final thing, if you enjoyed this episode, please spread the word and let your friends and family know about it. And also, if you haven't already, make sure you hit subscribe. And if you're watching on YouTube, hit the like button and notification bell. See you next time.